Our Bible reading this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, as it has been through this whole sermon series of Advent, Genesis chapter 14. I'll read verses 8 through 24, that's found on page 19 in your pew Bibles. And um, when I read this story, this is a, a relatively obscure story about a person named Melchizedek. You'll hear it and you'll say, well, um, that doesn't seem to have anything to do with Jesus. And this is probably the least Christmassy story I've ever heard in my life. Why is he reading it and, and preaching on it right now? Well, I'm doing that because, and this is true of all the uh, sermons in this series, even though they come from the book of Genesis, they point to Jesus. And that's certainly true with this story. In fact, in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews explicitly points to this story as saying that this points to Jesus. In Hebrews 5, verse 10, the author of Hebrews says this, Jesus was designated by God to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is a priest in the line of Melchizedek. Jesus and Melchizedek are related. Melchizedek anticipates Jesus. How is that so? Well, stay tuned. Let's read the passage. Let's hear the story. At the very beginning, we're coming in. Uh, it's about to be a battle. This is a Middle Eastern uh, part of the world. There are lots of different warlords, lots of different tribes. A bunch of them are going to fight. The main tribal leader is a guy named Keter Leomar. He's kind of the uber chief, and all the others pay tribute to him. And this is what happens. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sedim against Keter Leomar, the king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sedim was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into those tar pits, and the rest fled into the hills. The four kings, Ketelomar, the leader of those, seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and carried them away. They also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, uh, and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and an heir, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Now, after Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom, one of the defeated kings, came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. 
And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything he had. The king of Sodom, on the other hand, said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With a raised hand, I've sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I'll accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, that is to Ener, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. This is the word of the Lord. So I've just finished reading a, a relatively strange and obscure story of Middle Eastern warlords coming into conflict with each other. So let me start my sermon by telling a story of more modern Middle Eastern warlords and powers coming into conflict with each other in the modern Middle East. It's a story that comes from Thomas Friedman's book, From Beirut to Jerusalem. That book came out in 1989. And in that book, which was won the Pulitzer Prize, um, Friedman talks about his time as a journalist in the Middle East and all the things that he saw there. And during that time, of course, there were lots of battles, there was lots of fighting, there was lots of clashing of clans. Um, so nothing has really changed since the time of Keter Leomar till now. There's still a lot of this sort of fighting. And one of the main chiefs in Friedman's book is Hafez Assad, the president of Syria. He's no longer the president of Syria. His son Basar Assad is president of Syria. But the Assads have been in power in Syria for many, many years. And the reason they've been able to keep power is that they are brutal, okay? They are not afraid to kill people to stay in charge. They're that kind of warlord. And as a, a story to illustrate that, uh, Friedman talks about a time where Hafez Assad met with a man named Valid Jamblat. Valid Jamblat was a local leader. He was the head of the Druze people in Lebanon. And he met with Assad, and what made the, uh, the, the meeting interesting was that like seven years earlier, Assad had assassinated Walid's father, okay? The Syrian militia had assassinated Valid's dad, and everyone assumed that it was Hafez Assad who had ordered the hit. But now, just seven years later, here comes Valid, and he's going to meet with the man who killed his father. And he has to do it because Assad is so powerful. He needs to make nice with Assad, okay? So here's how the story goes. Valid comes into Assad's huge palatial office, and Assad is enthroned at this enormous desk. And Assad gets up and greets him in the warmest greeting possible, like they're the best of all buddies. And he gives this traditional Middle Eastern greeting. Hello, hello, my friend. Your house is my house. Your house is my house. Sit down, sit down. And he sits down. And Assad starts talking to him like there's nothing at all between them. And then at some point in the conversation, Assad gets to what he wants, right? Which he wants Valid to act in Lebanon on his behalf, to get some things done in Lebanon that Assad wants done. And Valid isn't sure about that. He's, he's not really what he wants to do, so he shows some hesitancy. He shows a little bit of reluctance. And when he does, Assad sits back in his desk, 
gives a thin smile and says, Valid, I see you sitting there and how much you remind me of your father. What a great man. What a shame that he is no longer with us. Brutal, right? Brutal. Valid got the message and he bent to Assad's will. He did what Assad wanted him to do. Friedman tells that story to show the brutality of a lot of the warlords in those days, but he doesn't just do it to criticize the brutality, he also does it to show their effectiveness. The Assads have had power for a long time, and that's because they're not afraid to do those sort of things. And that's not just the Assads. Kings and warlords since the beginning of time, and not just in the Middle East, have used those kinds of tactics to hold power, to wield power. And we may not like them, but they are effective. They wield this cold, calculating, by any means necessary, power. A Machiavellian kind of power. We see this power operating in our passage, in the passage we just read. The story I just read is a story of a contrast between two kings. Two different kings who come to meet with Abram. And these two kings in this story represent two different ways of holding power. Two different ways of wielding power. Two different ways of being in this world. Two different ways to be human. You may not be a king, but every single person in this room has a kingdom. You have a little realm a little sphere of influence where you exercise power, right? This is a story of two different ways to do that. So one of these kings is the king of Sodom. Abram and the king of Sodom meet after this tremendous battle between all the warlords in the region. And as I said before, the big chief, the chief warlord, sort of the godfather of the region is Keterleomer. He holds everyone in his sway and everyone pays him tribute, and if they don't pay him tribute, he sends Michael and Sonny around to collect. But in our passage, five of the kings decide they don't want to pay tribute anymore. So they go and they, they rebel against Keterleomar. Well, the godfather doesn't like it. So he rounds up a couple of his buddies, and he completely defeats those five kings. They flee and they fall into the tar pits. They're utterly destroyed. Now, Abram has nothing to do with this, right? Abram's not one of these warlords. He's not involved in this fight. He doesn't want to play their warlord games. Abram's living by the promise. Abram is driven by the promise of his Lord, by the covenant. That's what's setting his future. He's not interested in those warlord ambitions. And he wouldn't have been involved at all, except that when Keterleomer defeated the king of Sodom, he took his nephew Lot hostage took him into custody. Uncle Abram didn't like that. So he rounds up 318 men, not very many, his own men, and in the middle of the night, he miraculously, by the providence of God, somehow defeats Keterleomer, takes back all the booty, takes back all the people. Now the king of Sodom hears this, and you can imagine what he thinks. He thinks, huh, there is a new warlord in the neighborhood. There's this really strong guy. I got to make nice with him. I got to get this guy on my side. And so he shows up to Abraham because he wants to make a deal with Abraham. He wants to get Abraham into the fold. And you can imagine the meeting. He comes up to Abraham, puts his hands on his shoulders, 
kisses him on both cheeks and says, Kader, Abram, my friend, Migumba, I thank you for this work that you've done for me. And out of my gratitude, I want to make you an offer. You can keep all the spoils if you just give me back the people. I, I do this as a token of my esteem to you. King of Sodom wants to make a deal. He wants to suck Abram in to the warlord conflict. He wants Abram to get involved in his little game of thrones. What did Abram do? Uh-uh. He keeps living by the promise. I'm not going to get sucked into that. He's, With raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Abram's sticking to the promise. He knows that if you make a deal with a mafioso, it looks good up front, but you're drawn into this world of brutality. So that's one king who greets Abram. The other king who greets Abram is this strange and interesting man, Melchizedek. Such an interesting biblical figure. His name is interesting. Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. Melech, king, Zedek, righteousness. And he's king of Salem. You know what Salem means? Salem means peace. So he's king of peace and righteousness. And Strangely, he's also a priest of Most High God. He seems to worship the same God that we worship, that Abraham worships, even though he's completely from outside of the story. We've never seen him before. He's a priest of the Lord. And he doesn't seem to be involved in any other of this warlord nonsense, right? He's not involved in these warlord ambitions. He comes in and he talks to Abraham and he's not looking to make a deal. He's not trying to be strategic. He's not trying to make an alliance. He just comes in and he blesses Abram and gives him a gift. Blessed be Abram by the God most high, he says. And then he gives Abram and his tired army bread and wine. Gifts and a blessing. It's pure grace, pure generosity. So you have those two different kings. And, and hopefully you can see they represent two very different ways of being in this world. The king of Sodom represents the Hafezasad way of being and the way of living. The raw power, the power of the sword. In this kingdom, power starts with human desire, what I want, and it's worked out through force and will. Melchizedek, on the other hand, is about the way of the promise, the way of grace. In this world, power starts with a promise, with what we have received, and works itself out with blessing and bread and wine and grace. Two different ways. Abram chooses the way of Melchizedek, and to show that he's completely committed to it, he gives a tenth of all he has as an offering of commitment. These two ways of being, these two ways of power show up all through history and all through scripture. The encounter between these two kings is something we see all the time. We see it again when Moses stands before Pharaoh. Moses, right, who 
standing before Pharaoh with nothing but a shepherd's staff and a belief that God will do what he says he's going to do, standing in front of Pharaoh with all his power and his brutality, killing the Hebrew children, right? Same contrast. We see it again when David faces Goliath. David, nothing but his slingshot and his belief that God can keep his promise. Deliberately does not take up armor, right? Remember, rejects it, rejects that way of power. Standing against Goliath with his raw Philistine power and his taunts. We see it again when Daniel stands before Darius. Daniel, all he's got is belief in his Lord. Darius wants everyone to bow down to his idol of Persian power, to his military might. Daniel will only pray towards Jerusalem, if you remember, even if it means a lion's den. And then most quintessentially and perfectly, we see it at Bethlehem. That contrast between those two kings shows up in that favorite children's Christmas story, Luke 2, 1 through 7, the one that ends with, and Mary took her baby and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room at the inn. That very familiar passage is about the comparison between two different kinds of kings. Who are the kings? Well, one of them is Jesus, obviously, right? Mary, when she heard that she was going to give birth to Jesus, Jesus was announced as a king. He will be great and be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He'll be a king. So Jesus is one of the kings. Who's the other king in Luke 2? Caesar. Caesar Augustus. Octavius Caesar. The most powerful Roman emperor who ever lived. A man so powerful that he can just tell people to get up and go to their hometown and drop everything they're doing, and they do it. What kind of a ruler is Octavius Caesar? Well, how did he get his power? It was through brute force, through overcoming his enemies and ultimately killing them. He was not a humble man. He was a man who was very much into himself. You can read that in his autobiography. Maybe you didn't know. Augustus has an autobiography, probably ghost-written. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that. Here's an example of the tone of that autobiography and what Caesar Augustus says. Oh, the title of it, very modest, The Achievements of the Divine Augustus. Here's a sample. I got this from John Ortberg. Three times I triumphed at oration. I was voted the best speaker. Of course he was. 21 times I've been named emperor. The Senate voted yet more triumphs for me, which I declined because of victories won by me. Fifty-five times in my triumphs, children or kings, or kings or children of kings were led before my chariot. I was the highest-ranking senator for 40 years, and all citizens of one accord unceasingly prayed in every holy place for my well-being. Not a modest man, he's a man of ambition and ruthless power. A man in the Assad tradition. Contrast that with the king of Luke 2. The one born to a peasant girl and wrapped in bands of cloth and laid in a manger. The one for whom there was no room at the inn. The one whose palace was a stable and whose courtiers were shepherds. The one who came so that he could pour out his power on the cross, empty himself for you, for me, for our salvation. 
Jesus was a completely different kind of king. He was the king of the promise. He was the center of the promise, the promised one. And now we're in a position to see how Melchizedek and Jesus are related. Because like Melchizedek, when Jesus comes to this world, he comes to bring blessing, just like Melchizedek, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are all you as you struggle in this life. Blessing, and just like Melchizedek, food, right? Bread and wine. This is my body. This is my blood given for you. Jesus Christ is a priest and a king in the order of Melchizedek and fulfills the promise of that ancient king. Lying there in his cradle, surrounded by shepherds, you wouldn't think that this king would have much of a shot against Caesar Augustus in the Praetorian Guard in Rome. But don't be fooled. This child is the tiny son of God, and he has come to be king of kings and lord of lords. Caesar will die. The Roman Empire will fall to pieces. But he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. You're going to sing that in a minute. I said earlier that, that when Abram was facing those two kings, it must have been quite a challenge for him. And I say that because as Abram's facing the king of Sodom and, and getting that offer of all that stuff from him, living by the promise isn't easy, right? The promise is not something you can see. It's an invisible thing. It's a word. Right? Abram hadn't got a child at this point. He hadn't got any land. So none of the stuff of the... It was this completely invisible thing that Abram is trying to stay faithful to. Whereas the stuff of the warlords, that's right in front of his face. That's immediate gratification. That's right here, right now. That's not easy to stay faithful in that choice. I'm convinced that that's why God sent Melchizedek to Abram. Because he's trying to stay faithful to this invisible thing. And, and here comes Melchizedek. The Lord bless you. Here's some bread and wine. It's not a lot, but it's just enough to keep him faithful to this promise. The same tension exists for every single one of us here today. The struggle between the two kings is something that exists in our world it exists in every conversation. It exists in every place that you live and use your power. And it's still really hard to stay, to stay on this, this invisible promise, right? Hebrews 11, right? We're trying to, faith is, is having some sort of certainty about a thing that you do not see. That's not easy. And the promises of the world and the warlords are right around us. Fortunately, we have our Melchizedek place. And that's right here. Because here the priest who is the fulfillment of Melchizedek comes to us and he offers us blessing. Lord bless you and keep you. And he offers us food. I don't know where the communion table went. Bread and wine. It's around. Right? The same things. The same things as Melchizedek offered us. And maybe it doesn't seem like a whole lot but it's enough for us to keep our head up and to keep going. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your promise. Father, it's why we're all here.
this wonderful promise of salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. That is the ground of our life. That is the, the goal towards which we run. We, we are running that race that you have set before us, keeping our eyes on your son. Lord, help us to stay faithful in that. Thank you for all the saints of old who stayed faithful in their time. And thank you for your Holy Spirit that helps us stay faithful. And we pray, Lord, that you will make us your people day by day. In Christ's name, amen.